Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, we have a wonderful episode in store for you this evening, and uh, a special guest too. Uh, but you know, we've got our our usual co-host. Uh, he just got back from a game where he tells me that he floxed three thousand four hundred and fifty-seven of them. But will it be enough? I don't know. That is little Q, little D, if you please. Quick draw three four five seven. How's it going, Quick Draw? Hey, thank you. <laughs> That's very important. The capitalization, getting correct numbers. Much appreciated the attention to detail there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on your floxed count, perhaps you could uh, tell us who we have in the lab this evening. Yeah, so we have special guest tonight, Orion, aka Floxamol. Um, I'll let him uh, kind of introduce himself and also share your Twitch channel because you have some really great content on Keyforge as well. And we're super excited to have you on this week. Yeah, I am. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, it's been a very like couple months of sloppy lab work for me, which has been really cool getting to be on the ABR team with you all and everything. But my name is Orion. Like you said, uh, Orion 0497. You can leave the numbers off because I made this up when I was playing Star Wars Battlefront and I wanted to sound like Stormtrooper. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, do, there's the origin story. Yeah, it's it's not good, <laughs> but it's there. I was staring at 0497. I'm like, is it Mars? Is it like lead speak? Like, okay, it's made up. Sorry. It's my That's old cool. phone number. Like it is very much my like high school name. Just... I definitely thought you were born in April of 1997. Oh, okay. How young do you think I am? Look at, look I, at uh, Hey, Hey, come I mean, on, man. <laughs> I was, I was not judging. That's all. Okay. Well, uh, well, we were talking earlier on the, on the ABR team chat and we were like, yeah, this is a, a 90s reference. And they're all like, oh, yeah, because I was alive in the 90s. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> dating ourselves here. <laughs> anyway, like you said, I do run a, a Twitch channel and a YouTube channel. It's called Floxamall, and we'll get into why it's called that later. Actually, it's up on screen why it's called that. Uh, this is basically one of my favorite decks that we'll get into later. But you can see in there, there are five cards with the name Floxam in there. And it's just, it writes itself, the uh, carpet Floxam, the... Uh, flavor text is flocks and flocks mall and i was just like it, it's just what i gotta go with um because this is kind of also my most winningest deck so i wanted to honor it a little bit uh i don't actually love the fact that it's somewhat wordplay um <laughs> like honestly i i don't love that and i really considered changing it but like i just i had to do an ode to this deck because i love it and i wanted the channel to just be about like you know big clashes or whatever so just the kind of total destruction is uh, what we got so yeah for anyone listening to the podcast we are looking at the slightly beefy emir of metro bost did i pronounce all of that correctly metro bost is a, is a weird one i always want to call it metro boost but then Me it too. sounds like a wireless carrier and it's just like eh, maybe we should go with bost <laughs> i caught myself midway through that word yeah yeah i went thousand percent did a double take and like it's metro boost oh no yep. it's metro bost <laughs> that is a spicy 15 and 2 organized play record that is pretty awesome right there yeah and like i said we might get into that later but that's from a uh prime tournament back in colorado in 2020 i think like a month before the pandemic uh right after worlds collide released i guess um but got to win and it was an adaptive prime and this deck took me all the way and it was awesome. this deck not my skill <laughs> i will i will no. argue that with anyone <laughs> it is both i'm sure i've seen you play i've seen you perform pretty well in kagi um so don't say yourself short that's all thanks but it's a cool deck <laughs> <laughs> it is a cool deck i've actually seen you play this deck uh versus not tonight once in a kagi match i believe of some point at some point it might have been kagi it was definitely adaptive yeah no that was this season um and that is the reason i'm not in the semis right now so thanks for bringing that up <laughs> oh salt the wound. she uh no she got the very very close 2-0 over me but both games were like literally one amber um so first game I remember this well, in case you're wondering. Uh, I was on six for the last key. The only out she had was um, to be able to play, ready, and fight with Groke. Yep. She had it. Uh, we, we, then... we already knew that. Before you even said her only out, we both <laughs> knew exactly what the only yeah. out <laughs> The Rector is also a very famous deck. Uh, and then the second game, I was one Amber off from key charging for the win. So mm. that's just how it goes in Adaptive, right? They were both yeah. very good, very close games. Um, yeah, I mean, I said on... Uh, I was doing the interview with... Um, the casters after the Kagi semifinals match. Um, and, you know, it's important to note that just because there's a 2-0 in adaptive does not mean that one player got truly outclassed or anything like that. It's just Keyforge. That happens a lot. 2-0s um, happen, O2s happen. You know, it, it's 
just part of the game. And while we're on the topic of Kagi, I have to give a shout out. Um, Murph's in the chat. Big hearts for for organizing the event and all the folks kind of streaming games. Uh, m- yourself among prime among those, uh, Orion, for having having casted many of these top cut games. I really appreciate having that coverage and the interviews afterwards. Super super great content and like really cool to like get those insights into how folks have been thinking about the games and just really 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 digging it. So. It's been a blast and it's all thanks to Murph who's been, who even got all of the casters organized and is like, we're going to make our own channel. We're going to schedule this so that there's always someone covering it. Like he's done so much work uh, just to make it be that kind of a cool thing. And I just get to be like, Hey, I'm available that time. Let's plug my channel so that, you know, like it's just, it's been, it's been free way for me to do something that I love. And I love casting keyboards games. Like I like playing, but I would love to do that more. So this has been an awesome opportunity. Yeah. Thanks to everyone involved with that. Cause it's been really nice to be able to go back and watch the games. Um, hear the commentary here, kind of see some plays. Like we're going to talk a little bit later too, about, uh, you know, just learning and being a, a student of the game, I think is really important to you as well from what I've heard. And, um, being able to go back and watch those games is a huge part of that. So thank you for contributing to that. There's a, there's a really strong French player in the finals, I, I think, and somebody else, I forget who. <laughs> yeah, the other guy's not as good as the French player, Ashitaka. We'll be, we'll be rooting for you in the Sloppy Lab, Quick Draw. I want you I to know. I appreciate it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, like I told not tonight, I, I really wish that she was rooting for herself in the finals. But um, alas, I'll have to settle for her rooting for me. <laughs> I already won Kagi 7. It's known. It's known. This is the shadow, the shadow Kagi seven. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting a, getting an asterisk if I win this one. So, <laughs> yep. Well, all right. Enough, enough Kagi talk though. I feel like we could talk adaptive all night for sure. But what, what are we talking about this evening? What's our topic? Yeah. So, um, we were reaching out to Orion to kind of see how he was feeling, if he had uh, any particular ideas and the avenue that you took for this, I thought was fantastic, super relatable to me. And I think to a lot of the listeners, so I- I'll let you do the introduction on this and, uh, kind of where you want to go with this conversation tonight. Yeah. I, I think, uh, this is something that's come up on my streams a little bit too more recently, but even when I first wanted to start making content at all, this was a really big thing. And I think it's just, representing a portion of the community that maybe is a little bit intimidated by the more um, competitive side of things, the more competitive nature, even of some of the leagues we're doing and stuff. And that's basically just like budget players. Um, And I wanted to kind of represent that because that really does, like I would consider myself very much a budget player. Um, And, you know, we wanted to talk about exactly what budget means because it doesn't have to just mean like a money thing. And when I first started playing Keyforge, it definitely was, a money thing like a ten dollar sealed deck was just like okay this is this is all i'm doing for the week <laughs> this is this is my like fun budget for like half the month or whatever like it was just very much of an investment when coda first came out it was just like five decks is all i got before age of ascension even launched like it very much just a slow burn getting into this game and i think there's a lot of other people who have been in that position who've maybe gotten to um you know, get more out of like the uh, sales and stuff, the Age of Ascension decks that are really cheap now and everything, um, but are still maybe uh, kind of feel outsized or outclassed by a lot of the more, like, I think you call them some, I didn't say this, somebody else said this, but call them whales of the kind of keyboards <laughs> community. <laughs> yeah. Guys like JT Russell, you know, uh, those, the those uh, whales. <laughs> The Shermans. We'll call them the Shermans, right? I love that. Oh, that's that's good. I could be a Sherman. I don't know about whale, but I'll be a Sherman. (laughs) I like that too. Any Dark Tidings reference is very welcome in this channel. Ah, darn it. I I was going to try to avoid those just to spite you. I love this. And I just want to say that like Keyforge, especially when it first came out, I think had this reputation of being like, oh, all you need to do is have the best deck and you win, right? And that's just not true. The more we play it, the more we realize that. And so I really love to talk about this and kind of explore that more about, you know, what other uh, avenues do players have to kind of discover this game that go beyond like that perception that you just buy the best deck and you win because there's no deck that exists in Keyforge that will always win. And so there are, is so much more nuance into this game and I'm, I can't wait to dive into this with you more to talk about, uh, you know, how you can kind of still have fun with the game, but also maybe take advantage of it from a competitive standpoint too. What would you all consider the whale cutoff to be? I guess I'm trying to trying to really just wrestle with my own like self-perception. <laughs> JT's <laughs> having an existential, existential <laughs> yeah. crisis live on air, everybody. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> um, 
I used to I used to make a game out of it. So this is why it's so relatable to me. It's like I used to definitely be a similar type of player, Orion. Like I was very much aware of like how much money I was spending on the game. Um, I have played CCGs in the past, and I just wanted to be very careful about not falling into that trap again of just spending all of my budget on a card game again. You know, I wanted to enjoy the game for what it was, but I also didn't want to, you know, spend a ton of money on it. And I made a game out of it by like only finding value decks like under $50. Like I, I never spent 50 on a deck for at least two years after I started playing. I would just talk with a lot of people online. I would try to do some trades and always, you know, obviously you're trying to like trade up a little bit. I sold a lot of decks that I opened. So if I, if I opened something after a set came out and it wasn't quite my style, like I would often try to sell those. And I kept track of my budget by saying like, I've sold this many decks for this much money. So I have this much money to spend on other ones and try to like kind of work my way up that way. But, um, you know, I've since uh, slipped, <laughs> we'll say, and um, I've moved out of that budget approach to it, for better or for worse. Um, but I'm still enjoying the game, and I think it's important to know that like not everyone has to ever move out of that territory. Like you can still have a ton of fun, however you want to manage your budget and whatever kind of budget we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's something like from the outset that'd be very good for me to say is I have no problems. I have nothing against the people who have gone into the game more than I have, who have invested more into it than I have. Like it's, it's a game. <laughs> if you enjoy it, if you got the budget for it, if you got the time, then go for it. Like it's, I love this game. <laughs> uh, there are parts of me where it's just like, man, if I didn't have these certain restrictions, I would go crazy. But um, I do. And some of them are self-imposed. And I think that's one of the things where maybe Justin, you were going to uh, allude to this, but just like that money isn't necessarily the only budget that you might have. Uh, there can be relational budget. Like if you're, significant other is just like look i know this is important to you but if you go if i give you too much it's going to be all you do and it's just like i know personally that's what i where i would go like i could be very addicted to this very quickly and so she's a very good my wife is a very good balance for me of just like maybe you just don't need any more decks right now <laughs> you know like and that's good that's a very like a healthy thing in my life doesn't have to be where everyone's at again um there's the emotional side of it where it's just like, I'm also very sentimental. Like I'm a sap. <laughs> I'm a cheesy person, but I get very attached to these decks, even if they're like the bad, really bad, like age of Ascension decks or whatever. Like they all have that kind of personality and story to them. And I want to enjoy that rather than just always grabbing for these other kind of like decks that I didn't open. I don't have that kind of relationship or practice with. They just might be better. I definitely used to have like, I used to rip open displays like when I got them, like especially around set release, I would just rip open the display and then I would find this like sort of emptiness if I didn't find a deck that was like highly rated or something like that. And then I just found that I mm -hmm. enjoyed it more if I just slowly open them and you save money that way. You can just enjoy the decks that you get and like try to make sure you play as many of them or all of them as you can. And uh, it just stretches that like enjoyment over time of being able to um, not worry about like just finding the best deck you can find, but just enjoying the game for what it is. I think those the $20 Amazon Age of Ascension displays are like the best example of that, right? Because man, you could buy five of those displays, so 60 decks, and you could just tear through them so fast. But like, I know for me, if I did that, what am I even looking for? Because I'm exactly. not like the odds of finding a competitive deck in that <laughs> are so low. And so like last summer, I don't know if I started this before or after the fire sale, but like it was when I first was just like, okay, I'm just going to start growing my collection because we don't know when the next set is coming out or anything. So I just bought one of those displays, but I was just like, I know I bought these for really cheap, but I still like, I want it to be worth the money. So I'm going to play them. And so I just was like, I'm going to play five games with every deck I open. And I've done that with my entire collection now. And I've had so much fun. Like the amount of unfun decks I've found is like one. And it's a DT deck. I knew you were going to say it. That is the only reason why I, I will it. not say. I love some of my DT decks, but my least fun deck that I have owned out of all of them, and I have played all of them, is a DT deck. <laughs> I bet I could find something fun about that DT deck for You've you. You've played every deck you own. That's that is impressive. That's really good. And can I can I can I ask you uh, since we're since we're kind of you know delving the depths of our souls, how many decks do you have in your collection uh, right now? I am at. Uh, 189 and I've been playing since day one uh, since the game launched and I think <sighs> I was doing the math the other day but I at least four displays worth of that is just that cheap AOA 
stuff. Like most of that is Age of Ascension. I did get some stuff from the fire sale, but even that is just like a display and a half or so of Worlds Collide and then same of Mass Mutation. I didn't go super crazy with those because again, I I knew I was going to have to play them all. So. And you also said to us earlier that you've only ever bought one deck on the secondary market. Is that right? Yeah. Also, it was, a it was not a competitive deck. deck, right? Yeah. So talk about that. Like this is one of the, the one of the things I actually put on our notes because I it's something I really struggle with. I have actually looked on the secondary market many times to try and find like a competitive deck or just something that like I like. It doesn't even have to be good. Like something in the seventies or whatever that has a combo. Every time I do that, I end up like narrowing my search more and more until the deck is either $100 or doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, but one time I was just going through it and I decided to pull the trigger. And I was just like, it, it was this like 60 sass uh, double bellowing Patrizate deck with Mars Needs Amber. And then it also had like double Yerks with a fair game. So what I was looking for originally was a fair game with a lot of Yerks. And what I ended up with was this deck. But this deck also has the name dizzyingly bellowing Rhea. So it has bellowing in the name and double patches eight. So I was just like, I'm going to offer five bucks for this because it's just a cool deck. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the only one I've ever bought off the secondary market. I actually have a namesake deck, Quick Draw, and it is very reminiscent of that. It has a old Yerk, Hysteria, and a fair game. And I definitely take advantage of that a lot where it's like, I'll do a few things. So like it will, Hysteria will like, put back a ton of creatures in their hand. I can play the old Yurk to discard two, take the old Yurk back, discard two more, end up with like virtually an empty hand and they have like 12 cards in their hand and then you play the fair game. And it's a it's a pretty nice little combo there, a little swing that happens. And it's also a nice namesake deck for me. I think I was looking for the Hysteria too, but again, I just, I got lost in the mire and finally I was just like, I need to buy something because if I don't, I never will. And so I just got this one, but I haven't bought anything since, so it still didn't work. <laughs> But did you enjoy that one? Uh, It's a very fun deck. I also just love uh, Age of Ascension discs, like Tezmal, Streak, all those kind of things are just like, they're they're the balanced version of stuff that I hate, (laughs) you know, where it's just like, you gotta gotta try really hard to get this stuff to work. But if you do, you can just dominate a game. It's a fun one, but nothing spectacular. (laughs) And so you don't see really yourself changing your like approach to the secondary market in the future? I mean, that's that's a, a different thing. Again, just because of... The emotional attachment for me I, I really do want to try and do what i can with what i have um i brought this analogy up uh in her chat beforehand but uh a very famous musician that i used to listen to a lot uh has a story kind of about when he first started making music and it's jack white for anyone who listens to the white stripes and stuff like that when he was first starting out he basically said like he wanted he was making money and stuff so he could have bought the best guitar ever but he wanted to stay with the like cheap plastic, um, like Walmart guitars, because it forced him to work so hard to make the music he wanted to, that there was kind of this extra like emotion and like ownership to it. And like, I am, this is way more (laughs) uh, artsy than Keyforge gets. Like this is very like, I don't know what the word would be, like way more intense maybe than I should feel about my Keyforge decks, right? But like if I have decks that I really like playing, I want to see like how far can I take them? How much can I squeeze out of them? And if I have that that feeling of like, I opened this, this is my deck, this is very unique to me, I'm going to see what it can do. Then that's that's how I want to play the game. So that's again, going back to that like budget of almost like my own emotional budget in the game is just the decks I open. So short answer, currently I don't plan to buy anything, but I could be persuaded. I love the Jack White analogy and your wife came up with that, right? She reminded me of it, and I was so thrilled that she did that because she never listens to the White Stripes or anything. I showed her the documentary, It Might Get Loud, like once, and somehow that like stuck with her because somebody else we knew also used that analogy once. I don't know. It's a, it's a great story. Okay, so this might be the most important question of the night, Ryan. White Stripes or Black Keys? You don't know the Black Keys. I know. Or you just or, okay, sure. just debating. Just debating. It's a tough one. <laughs> it's, I mean, if I could jump in, I think it depends on what year you're talking about with the black keys. Because I think I'm just like I'm, I want like a two word answer, you know, and, and, this, and it should be white stripes or black keys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. 
otherwise we might not be in keyboard content land for very long if i was going off of like the soul of what they were trying to do then it's definitely the white stripes i don't know if the actual music quite gets there on some of the albums like some of them are fantastic but i think like if i was just going to sit and listen to like good music it'd probably be black keys more but you didn't ask rock and tours Rockin' Tours is one of Jack White's other bands, and that's the one that, like, I even... That's how I first learned about Jack White was those guys, so... So you would pick the Rockin' Tours over the other two? Yes. All right. Two... I guess they have a third album that came out recently, but those two original albums, uh, Consulars of the Lonely, is just ah, so good. That's a good question there, JT. It's a good question. It really is. I feel like now in stereo would have opinions. <laughs> Next time we have them on, that'll be the question for now in stereo too. Did you answer? Uh, I think I'm probably in Black Keys, the Black Keys land. I'm like squarely in the middle. I, I just don't know. I like them both a lot. There's there's not a wrong answer, but uh, where was I going with that? I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, it was kind of unrelated, but I really did like what you were saying about having an attachment to the decks. You know, I have bought an awful lot of decks I'll out myself. I think I'm in the, the 1300 range, something along that, maybe close to 1500. And I have, you can see behind me, the folks listening can't, but the folks watching can. I probably have more unopened decks back there than the 185, just waiting for sloppy sextets to come their way. There was probably a time when I was like as jazzed about reading deck lists and being like, ooh, is this good? And like trying to, trying to figure out from a read almost as much as playing it. So I've played an awful lot of those 1300 decks. Most of them are really bad AOA decks that I've tried really hard to make work in the competitive queue. <laughs> so sorry to those peeps. <laughs> so, sometimes people get annoyed if you bring like a 65 in a competitive. Well, well, here's the thing though, right? And we've talked about this before, but you know, you can't model the strength of a deck with a number, right? It's maybe a distribution and an awful lot of those 65s have the tail end of their upper range overlapping at least some amount of the lower end of the distribution of the you know the 90 plus decks and if you can push your 65 to its upper range with some regularity and steal some wins there like that's an awful lot of fun i would i would argue more fun than you know rolling in with the plus one especially if your opponent is me with the 65 but it's yeah, it's an awful lot of fun and i think i was looking i was looking through my decks the other day and just kind of making this mental graph of like with on one axis the amount i've paid for a deck and on another axis, the number of times I've played it. Far and away, the decks that I've played most are the ones that I've opened myself. You know, Denizag and Combo Grieve are an AOA and Coda deck. Denizag is, you know, a, a pretty horrid looking, I want to say 67 AOA deck, but I get a lot of, awful lot of games with it. Great deck for Adaptive, uh, Newton, you know, all the fun, really, really sweaty formats. And Combo Grieve is just, just a really heisty coat of spiciness but that's in my that's in my nkfl lineup i have actually a few a few that i've opened in my nkfl lineup how many in your nkfl lineup brian did you open all i would assume all six of them yep all six of them uh bellowing raya was not quite uh <laughs> not quite good enough to make it didn't in make there it. um i was going to try and think of how many of them i opened from the fire sale and i think the fire sale is what pushed me over the edge to feel like I could get into something like NKFL because it was very intimidating. And I think there's a lot of things that intimidate me in the position I'm in, but I was able to open some things that like, honestly, now the ones that I initially opened and thought were going to be the best in that I'm not using as many of, but it, it helped me get over that like fear of like, I have to have six amazing decks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I don't know if we're getting into that now or not. That was one of the big things that was like a, big eye-opener for me was playing in the NFL. As a as a budget player, or as a player who doesn't have many decks, or a player who is intimidated by these kind of formats, where you see like a lot of people posting their lineups and stuff like that, they have like all this stuff in the 80s, some stuff in the 90s. Like, how do you convince yourself to say like, you know, I'm just going to take the leap and I'm going to give it a shot? One of the things that happened was I just saw a lot of people doing it. Like there's starting to be a lot more streams. They started letting in all the U.S players to the nkfl and like i I think the nkfl itself is a format that when you first see it it does look like oh this is a guy with 690 sas decks i'm not touching that (laughs) but the more you get into it and try it like one you see very few people have that like most people i would say most competitive players have like a good triad right they have a really solid triad and maybe that's where they start with their nkfl list but having more than three like super solid decks is not easy. 
Like it takes a lot of work. You're probably not opening them yourself most of the time. And you, so you have to fill in with these other three and I get two bands. So if I can ban two of your three triad decks, that means I'm facing one of them and three other decks that you just put in there because you needed to fill out six decks. And I don't think I realized that right away. But like I said, once I got some decks from the fire sale, I was like, okay, at least I won't feel like I am wasting their time <laughs> coming in with my collection. What's really funny is my first season, I didn't do that well. Like I, I was in bronze and I I think I stayed about middle of the pack. Like I, I was maybe like six and six or whatever. Uh, I don't remember what the scores were or whatever, but so many people joined the NKFL the next season that I got bumped to silver anyways. And I was petrified. <laughs> I was like, I'm not good. And I just got put a higher for no reason <laughs> but then that season so that was season 19 so season 19 I, I changed up my list a little bit i looked at because sorry i'm all over the place a little bit with this but the other thing about the nkfl is that what you were saying earlier i think you mentioned this quick draw is that every deck like there's no deck that is just universally good they all have matchups and i believed that going into the nkfl but after playing the nkfl that became like this huge, like wide open door of like, oh, I have so many decks that can fill this hole that I did not think would like work in this format. But now if I just ban right, like this deck can just run over stuff and it's like a 71 SAS, right? And it's just like, it it really changed my perspective of my own collection into being like, okay, Keyforge is a game of matchups and NKFL is a match of matchups. And so yeah. they can bring their 90 SAS. If I have the right matchup for it, I can still win that match. Yeah. Sometimes it takes some luck. <laughs> uh, it, it's Keyforge. You know, you, you need a little bit. Yeah. And then so that second season, season 19, I actually ended up maintaining my position in silver, even though like 50 new players had entered the NKFL. I got bumped up for no reason, but I still actually maintained that. Season 20 is going a little bit rougher. <laughs> so I might get down to bronze, but that's the other thing I love about the NKFL is it is tiered, right? You have five different levels now of like, I don't know, just ways to almost like fit into your level of competitiveness and even your level of like collection and i, I think, think like i think there's six now six <laughs> it's uh, huge having that kind of ladder system is something that's really difficult to do in keyforge especially without like an official client or whatever and then kfl has done such a great job of just setting up a system where someone like me can feel like i'm competing fairly with somewhat even level like competitors but I'm not having to give them my deck. And I think that's like, I don't mind the adaptive formats where like, cause right. That's kind of how you, even the playing field a lot is you make these limited formats. Um, but in this one, I don't have to do that. I just have to ban well and choose my matchups well, and I can actually succeed. Yeah. There's a lot to learn in the format. Like this is only my second season in the NKFL and I'm like already like learning so much from it. And I would just encourage anyone that's like intimidated by it to just try to jump in if there's openings, because you know, like you said, like you, you try stuff out, you learn that there's like a lot of banning strategy involved with this. You don't need the best decks. Um, it's such a massive learning experience. And I think you and I talked earlier about how, you know, you just want to be a student of the game mm -hmm. and you want to be the best player you can be regardless of your deck strength is what you had said earlier in our preparations for this. I totally resonate with that. I think that's an awesome way to approach the game, regardless of what kind of decks you feel you have. I just think that's the approach that I think everyone should take if you're thinking about playing the game competitively at all. Oh, totally. And I mean, looking back at just some of my own matches from the past few seasons and, you know, games that I've watched, even even some of the folks that I've, you know, recognized from the NKFL but have have kind of bumped bumped into in other leagues, you know, a lot of the a lot of the players who most i don't know worried about being matched up with are not the like not the high sass decks but they're folks who i know know their decks really well you know i mean every time i watch not tonight play rector i'm like all right there's got to be a great aoa deck in my collection somewhere that i'm just sleeping on you know or like or karen was playing something in the 60s in diamond and it's not it's not all about the number it's def there's definitely a lot to be said for getting that skill in the luck skill deck equation to really work for you um and um i know we i know we kind of hit this note last time around with formats that allow for leaving decks out and giving you some room to position yourself for better matchups but that's just one more skill testing vector i, I love seeing it so yeah I, I definitely encourage folks to like give it a try focus more on like knowing your decks than worrying about necessarily you know 
what, what they're rated or, or whether or not going to be outgunned. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. The, that last thing you said is actually really interesting. And I think I actually forgot to put this on there, but it's something I have realized about myself in playing the NKFL is I have a really hard time practicing my best decks mm-hmm. and playing in the NKFL has actually forced me to play them a lot more and find out if they're actually my best decks or not. And the ones that I thought are actually not my best decks, a lot of scenarios. But I think the reason for that is, and this is a point I do really want to hit on for this uh, topic is that as someone who is very limited, like I'm not going to go out and buy a better deck if my, if my 87 sass, only one I got sucks, I'm not going to go buy a better one. Like I'm either going to go find something else in my collection or I'm going to stop playing that fear of it losing makes me not play it <laughs> because as soon as I play it and lose, then I'm going to think, oh, this is actually a bad deck instead of thinking, well, I just need to play it more or it just needs the right matchup. I totally relate to that too. This is crazy. Like, Oh, it kills me. <laughs> I get anxiety for playing my best decks in casual games because I'm just like, I don't want to lose with this. It would make me feel really bad. But you're right. Like Playing in a competitive scene like that forces me to play it and learn it. I wish I learned it before I got there, <laughs> but it's a great excuse to play it anyway. Like, yeah, just to not be afraid and just to test it out there and just see what see what you have. So like you and your deck, just see what they have up against better competition. And then the opposite side of that is if you do end up bringing a deck in that like you really like, but you don't think is great, you get a couple of those good matchups and you win with it. And you're just like, oh, this is actually an awesome deck and it can actually do stuff. Especially uh, if you like learn to play it well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so totally. And I uh, you're you're kind of teeing me up here. I don't I don't think it was intentional, but I had a season right after the fire sale. I was actually moving and uh didn't have all of my usual decks with me. I had just the fire sale decks with me. So I was like, "You know what? This is going to be fun." And and to to Sizeox's credit, they said, "Hey, you know, play the same lineup if, you know, from last season and that's fine, no big deal." But I was like, "No, nah, you know what? This is going to be a fun challenge." I'm going to just pick from the fire sale decks and all right, I will say I opened some really good <laughs> decks in the fire sale. I forgot how many boxes it was. I mean, it was like maybe somewhere between three and 12. Um, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, it, was, so it, was 12. it was like, I think it was like, I think it was like f- four, maybe six. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay. So there was like, you know, some high eighties uh, and, and a 90 in there, but be that as it may, the standout deck, the standout deck was uh, this unassuming 76. And I looked at this deck and I was like, I really, I really don't want to be playing this deck. And I even said it on stream once. And I was like, yeah, I was like, uh, like this deck is just going to be the dregs of my, of my hexad just shambling along with me from match to match, you know, but halfway through the season, I started playing it. And I was like, this is actually the deck that held the whole lineup together just because of the, what it provided plugged so many holes that the other decks presented, right? And this is the deck Porto Drain, the Ender of the Burning. Uh, you can check it out in the NKFL 17 document if you have access to that. I'll drop it in the chat here. I mean, it, it's a cool deck, but uh, it definitely can can kind of feel like it does nothing. So when I was playing it, just kind of playing some of the decks that I got from this fire sale, seeing what would make the cut for the hex ad. I think I was on like a 17% win percentage, you know, uh, something along those lines. Uh, but I mean, it doesn't really matter how a deck does in a vacuum when you're getting ready for something like a hex ad season, you know, it's all about how it, how it does amidst the other decks in your lineup. And, and with that, that matchup crafting, you know, you might only see matchups in that 17%, but if that's what you need, then that's, really important to recognize and i mean you look at some of these decks that i put together and i'm I'm scrolling through it here but it's got kind of the typical the typical high highly rated worlds collide holes right there's like no board control so so okay this 90 with the 19c gets banned and then everything else is sort of sub 10 uh, without wipes except for except for porter drain and i wasn't playing it and it just it took me like way too long to realize that and to realize like how important it was in the lineup. Player decks, this probably should have been a star of the lineup. I, I was leaving a lot of value on the table just by not being not being familiar with, with the decks and what matchups they would shine in. Yeah, we talk about NKFL a lot in the show, and it's super relatable here though, just to get back towards the, the budget aspect of it, is like you don't need the absolute most expensive, highest rated decks to compete in a, a, a format like NKFL. Um but like some of the other formats you talked about, Orion, like the adaptive prime that you played in, like 
you know, unfortunately, Adaptive is not currently one of the official formats for Ghost Galaxy, but you can still find Adaptive games online. Uh, in Kagi, for example, there's a lot of other formats that allow for something similar, like Karen and is running the final, uh, what's it called, the, uh, the True Moirai event. Moray, I don't know how to pronounce that. I think everyone has a different pronunciation, but like those kind of formats are also pretty good for this stuff. And there's a lot of opportunities out there for these limited formats. And I just, I would encourage people to take advantage of it. Yeah. And sorry if it sounded like I was bashing those earlier. Like I, no, that no. was not the intent at all. I was just saying like in my position, finding a place, like even today we talked about how I played triad and I used all my own decks and I got slaughtered in my position. It's very hard to find a format where I can just bring my decks and just play my decks and do well. And NKFL has surprised me a lot. And yeah. I want, there's other reasons why you wouldn't do it NKFL. Like it's a very big time commitment. It's, it can be very tough. But like, I want people to just think through like, hey, just try it because you might be really surprised like I was. Yeah. I love the other ones like Adaptive and Morai and all those too. Like they're very awesome and very skill testing. Yeah. I, th- I think it's super important that Ghost Galaxy does correct next year about like people want to be able to bring any deck. Like that was really like when the game came out, there was that promise of like, you can play any deck. You only need one deck. And then when your competitive formats are all about like you have to bring the best deck possible or that you own, it doesn't, you know, it kind of, it's not really fulfilling that original promise. And so I really hope Adaptive comes back. I know like some of the concerns they had is like it's a best of three, so it takes too long. People don't like handing their deck to someone else, but like there are ways around these concerns. And I think Adaptive, I just, I really hope it comes back. It's very popular with a lot of people and it really does. Uh, like fit that original not a promise so much as like a w- the way the game was marketed is like you only need one deck and it it's a great format to just kind of keep that going yeah and just the spirit of the game right where it's just like you want that to kind of be that almost like Yu-Gi-Oh moment of just like this is totally unique to me and I am gonna beat you with it and I'm gonna beat it because I know it so well I don't know there's a there's a really cool like no other game can do that right like it's so unique to Keyforge you mentioned Triad. You had a, a tough ABR match in Triad. Triad is not as good as Hexad for this kind of like mitigation. It's still not bad. It's like it's probably a little bit better than Archon um, because you kind of create this this as I call it a mini meta where you bring three decks that have different strengths, maybe different weaknesses. You see what your opponents have and you try to just angle your matchups in a way that allows you. And that just rewards you from knowing your decks, knowing your decks matchups, your strengths and weaknesses. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have three better decks than your opponent or even two better decks than your opponent. Yeah, I think Triad is probably the least forgiving format out there. Like True Triad, OG Triad is the least forgiving format. I love Hexad. I love Best of One Triad as as ways to showcase good decks, but leaving room for some toolkitting. I don't know. I don't know how you want to call it, but leaving room for you to like create some value from decks that aren't just like pure heat and have to stand alone in our console setting, but can can like contribute to a whole of a larger lineup. Uh, we also had an interesting question too. Like these formats do lend themselves to analysis paralysis, right? Like like you can look at six decks and just be like, ah, oh, this is like I I can't even like no thank you. I will tell you that the season of NKFL that I did the absolute worst. Before every match, I made a spreadsheet with my six decks going down in a column and their six decks going down in a row and tried to estimate every of the potential matchups, all 36 matchups. I filled in a lot of squares on a spreadsheet for each round and <laughs> terribly, <laughs> terribly. And uh, and now it's like, I don't know, I, I will look at it beforehand, but your, your gut reactions are usually going to be pretty good if you know your decks well, kind of like what you all are saying. And you can also bring lineups, you know, lean into the this matchup crafting nature that lend themselves to easier banning decisions. In my NKFL lineup, I have two or three decks that can really generate a runaway board state. And so if I see that you've got only one board wipe, like, okay, that's an easy ban. I'm going to set myself up for one, maybe two good matchups. Same for artifact control. I have a few decks that have very potent artifacts. And if I only see, you know, one or two decks with hard R, that's also kind of an easy direction to lean into for banning. And now I'm left with kind of a strategy to to work with. 
and not having to think too much about like, okay, between these two, they both look good, but which one's better? If your kind of lineup is is constructed in a way to lean into some of those holes when you see them, then you can be left with some easier decisions. Yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff that I learned in my first season too, is like, I was very weak to hard artifact control and scaling amber control. And so then for the next season, I just kind of tried to adapt my lineup to, in a way that wasn't just going to be like super weak to that stuff. And so you, you you play more, you learn, and it gets easier. And you know, even though my collection got bigger from season to season, I still felt like I just I I understand the game better from those. And that's I think super important. It's interesting coming at that from my angle because I've had to learn some of that too. And like I think the learning how to just ban something very like fairly broadly like banning the same kind of things every time helps a lot so like last season that's kind of what i did and i'll put this deck in the chat here um so my first season like i said didn't go very well and then second season like i was just expecting to get rolled over but i was just like i'm gonna try bringing this deck because i think it can catch some people off guard if they don't have artifact control and then i started seeing multiple lineups that only had like two or three decks with artifact control and i was like let's just try banning them and see if this can steal some wins and then this deck just ended up doing like five and one on the season because i was able to ban that like every time and again it's just 71 mass mutation deck but it has like this lineup of artifacts that's like an engine builder and if you get them all down you don't beat this deck if you can win before they're all down then you're fine but if you don't deal with them. It's it's really, really gross. And it's a really fun deck to play. But that's what I started doing. It's just like, all right, this one's got two Reclaim by Nature. That's my first ban. This one's got a Poltergeist. That's my second ban. I'm going to hope they play their other deck with Artifact Control in the first two. And if they do, then I'm playing this game three. Lots of game threes I won just because they did not have an answer to this deck, like the Eaton's Jar. If they don't have Artifact Control against an Eaton's Jar, it's like, oh, there's a nice three Ronnies you got. Too bad they're dead in your hand now. Yeah. That's a great strategy, and it's a great approach to it, too. Like, this is a, a pretty unassuming deck, but you've been able to kind of take it and make it a force to be reckoned with in this lineup against a bunch of decks that are in the 80s, just based on knowing the matchups, knowing the cards that are important, uh, and just kind of, you know, being smarter about the game and your approach to it. Yeah, it, it has some other weaknesses, but it, that season, it was really a star, and it was really exciting to do that because it was one that... It was really cool when I opened and then I just put it on the shelf for a while and I was like, let's give it a try. And then it uh, really shined. But the other side of that, and this is, I think, if this question was based on what Ketzer was saying in the chat, what's happening to me this season is I know what decks my opponent is going to ban every time. And like, I didn't, I don't think I tried to do that. I don't think I tried to have like a ban bait or whatever, but it kind of just like worked out that way that it was just like, okay, I know they're going to ban this on the first one. So that means I always get to choose one of these two other decks to save. And I know they're just going to ban the other one. So now it's basically like I'm only playing with four decks every round and I only have to choose which one I'm not going to play in the matchup. And that's actually made it easier. That's not yeah. ideal because you're not necessarily like pushing your opponent to make more mistakes by banning the wrong ones. But it has made it easier to just be like, okay, these are the four decks that I know I'm playing. And some of them are unassuming and really doing well. So that's not a bad thing either, though, like to say that you only have those four decks, but like going into your first ban, knowing what they're going to ban from you is, you know, it's not necessarily bad. Like you have that information and that knowledge and that can help influence the matchups you're trying to create too, as well in your band. It's a different approach if you have like two things that are both around the same size. They both look just as as intimidating, and you don't know what your opponent's going to do. And they often will surprise you. But um, if you have one that stands out, you know, like you feel good about, like, hey, I finally got this great deck. It's going to go in my NKFL, and you never play it because it's always banned. There's some downside to that too, but at the same time, you have that knowledge that play into it. You know, like use that to your advantage. Our teammate Crusader has the strategy of always banning the deck with the most hearts. You yep. know, it's just which is pretty good, pretty good strategy. It's a really good strategy. <laughs> you you like very invariably end up banning the secondary market purchases, <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, and then for Crusaders to help him out, you know, whenever he whenever he goes up against the mirror match, I like to heart his bad decks and not heart his good decks. Just so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so evil. <laughs> It's like, all right, Crusader, I know you want this one to get banned. Give it a heart. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The things I learn about you on this show, JP. <laughs> There's always good. another level. Just when you think I can't next level you. Heart in the bad decks. Okay. All right. So, Orion, I, I would really like to know like, if there's any similar budget-type players listening or watching 
like what would you what would be your like your main bullet points like your main high levels that you would tell them to try to convince them to not be so intimidated by the game or like how to enjoy the game more anything that like kind of a high level thing that you would like them to know i think actually something you were saying earlier jt is one of my first things and that's just like play your deck anyways that's that was one of the big things i learned that summer just like opening aoa after aoa and playing them even in the casual queue you'd still come up against some like really good decks and i got so surprised at some of the matchups i won now it doesn't mean that those decks are now in my nkfl lineup like it was a 55 aoa deck but the brobnar just punched the crap out of <laughs> that mass mutation board and i was able to win with it like it doesn't happen every time but like you'd never know that that interaction even exists that aoa actually has a really good matchup at times against mass mutation just because it can control the board that way and it's really hard to even have that confidence in like a, a deck like rector without having played it so i mean that's still the, the biggest thing is just play your decks try to have fun with them and don't get intimidated by like the crazy sass differentials because just try to win see what it takes to win with all those and like you said try to be a student of the game and squeeze every last ounce of like do everything in your power to win even though the matchup looks impossible and you'll learn but you also learn about your decks and your playstyle, and like you can grow your confidence in some of those things but i think on the other side of that don't worry about losing like even today what we were saying with the triad thing it's very easy for me to lose a triad like that and think my collection is just not good enough and so i will just never win a triad and so it's like well there's so many other things i could learn from that triad match that were not related to the decks that i chose they could have been the deck that i banned it could have been the way that i like i chose the wrong one first it could have been how i played the first matchup wrong like there's so many other things to learn from losing and from playing against really good really high level players and really high level decks like those exist you're gonna see them learn how to beat them and if the cards don't go your way that's keyforge there's gonna be randomness there learn from it and move on right i think what we were saying about the adaptive and limited formats like play kagi <laughs> go play the morai go play those ones where you can bring any deck get that deck that you love that is unique that is tricky to play or whatever that just jives with your brain and watch someone else struggle to play it because that can feel really fun sometimes because it makes it feel more unique to you and i think this deck or this game has that aspect of uniqueness that no other game has and there's that personal attachment to those things where it's like you're putting yourself out there in the deck in a sense even though you didn't make the deck it still is kind of like an extension of you because no one else has that so it is unique to you and so that's something to have fun and celebrate right and let me know if i'm rambling too much <laughs> oh this is great I love, I love hearing about this uh this is one of the things we didn't touch on as much but like there's nothing evil about the secondary market right if you want to just get something that you think would help you win then go do it there's so many decks that you can get that are not that expensive that can really fit into what you're doing without it having to be like a 90 sas deck i really struggle with that so i think it'd be awesome if some guys like you even could put together guides on how to find how to find those like mid 70s decks that are not going to like break the bank that are i don't know fit into a budget player's thing without it being like super intimidating or whatever because i i really struggle with that i would not know what deck to buy right now if i tried <laughs> i have a in interjection i whenever i was more of a budget player i found a, a really good world's collide deck that's like i think it was 76 as at the time i think it's a 77 right now maybe 78 i forget and i don't remember exactly what what about it called to me other than the artifact control and like having that kind of versatility it had a little bit of creature control not quite enough but it's still a really good deck. It had some amber control. It was just kind of well-rounded with like the arc scores. And that's kind of what I looked for originally, like as I'm trying to find these these affordable decks that are still pretty solid. I liked having the ability to have the answer for whatever was coming up against me. So like mm -hmm. the rough arc scores I was looking for was like 12 amber control, about 20 expected amber, at least one piece of hard artifact control, and at least 10 or 12 creature control. And that did fairly well for me to like find certain things. Um, I think as you get into the higher power decks, though, like the more expensive stuff too, you can kind of relax on some of that stuff, especially artifact control, because you know your deck's going to do enough other things really well that it doesn't really like need the artifact control. I used to really think I needed artifact control in every single deck, and then when I started playing some decks that were like much stronger, I realized, oh, like this can win in ways despite whatever artifacts the opponent has. And so 
But if you're looking in that range, you know, and you want to be competitive, I, I think like looking at the arc score is probably a better way to me of finding, you know, potent decks uh, bang for the buck than just looking at the SAS score. I want to I want to plug some of the stuff that Aurora's written because I know she's had some uh, some articles up on timeshapers.com about about kind of searching DOK for for stuff in that range. I don't want to quote it directly because it's been a, been a while since I've read it, but I think it's a good resource for folks to check out too along those lines. But definitely want to echo what you were saying, Quick Draw, about, yeah, don't worry about the number. The ARC scores are probably a better guide if you're if you're trying to home in on something. And I want to uh, also uh, echo some of the sentiments in the chat here. Don't be afraid to make an offer. You know, like mm-hmm. I've sent an awful lot of offers for decks that had no price listed and they're rejected. I'm like, all right, moving on. <laughs> like, like, okay. Especially if there's no price listed, I wouldn't worry about, you know, what they think it's worth, what you think it's worth. They don't know because they, they didn't put a price, you know? So <laughs> they can't be mad about any offer that you, that you submit. So Think about what you're comfortable paying for it. What makes sense for you and your and and, and whatever the whatever budget means to you. And if you're happy with the number, then, then send it along. And if they say no, then then now then now you know. I joke with Zach from Data Force Stream that uh, I watch his fresh marks segment and then the next morning when I wake up and then submit some lowball offers to all these decks <laughs> and like see where the weak links are in the the selling market. <laughs> test test the waters. Don't be afraid to test the waters have an idea of what you're looking for and also know what you're comfortable with. I just to add one more thing is that the deck I was talking about too, that I felt I got a really good value on. The reason I got it is because I reached out to the person we were doing other trades, other small purchases and sales back and forth with each other. And we just chatted a lot on discord and we just kind of became friends that way. And the more we talked to each other, like we talked about the game um eventually he was kind of like you know i can tell you really want this deck and uh, you know i'm probably not going to be playing it and so i'll give you a really good deal on it that's that's how i got it and it was really just by being a member of the community like being a friendly engaging person and talking to other people you know obviously you know not everybody's going to be that kind of outgoing to just talk to random strangers but there's a lot of friendly people on all of the discord servers and if you just become more active in the community and talk to these people even in the public forums I think when people get to know you, um, like I am, I'm very happy to share some decks I have in my collection that I think someone else would really enjoy more than they're sitting in my drawer right now, like not getting played. So I think there's a lot of that to it as well, where it's like a lot of people are just happy to say like, okay, someone else is going to enjoy this deck. I'm willing to part with it for a reasonable price that they can enjoy this instead of no one ever playing it. I think there's a couple of things for me. Like, it's good to hear that. I think one of the things for me is hearing that is like, well, the easy pitfall is if they're not playing it, then it's not good. <laughs> but, ah, yeah. Right. That, but that's not true. Right. Like it's just, it might not be the play style or even like you were saying, JT, uh, the time shapers articles, Aurora did one, was it yesterday or today about affinities? Like your, or I think, is that the word? That yeah. Yeah. Yep, that just it. like your affinity to the deck. It just might not be the play style you like. It might not be something that like, with you or whatever it doesn't mean it's a bad deck but on the other side of that like it's so easy for me to get on there and think if i'm going to pay this much money even if it's like 50 bucks that i'm looking for a perfect deck and a perfect deck doesn't exist and that means that the imperfect decks in my collection are also good so like you can look at it all those ways and it's all cool stuff yeah i I can't remember where else i heard that but like someone else had said like oh if this person if this deck really that good this person wouldn't be selling it and that's just not true it's like it's about style. It's about, you know, like what that person is, you know, what do they like to play? What do they have the affinity for? Like Aurora had said and what you'd said. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Like, don't just think that because a deck's for sale, it must not be good. That's like, you know, there's lots of good decks for sale. There's a lot of good values for sale. It's just really interesting that, you know, like I totally understand like where that thought's coming from. And I've definitely thought that myself. But it's fun, though, to go on the hunt every once in a while and like find a good value, get something for, you know, what you think is a reasonable price. Maybe you think they undervalued it. You feel good about that. You know, like even if there's also something in the back of your head saying like, well, they wouldn't have got rid of it. It was actually that good. But and the last thing I'll say on that is like you can also test decks before you decide to buy them or, or trade for them. And if something clicks for you, then all the better. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome with my lineup initially in the NKFL as well, you know, most of my highest performing decks are secondary market purchases, not all of them. I, um, some of actually my, my best decks right now are ones that I've opened, but you look at your lineup and you're like, these are all like somebody else's rejects that I'm rolling in with, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> like here I come. 
there's just so much more to it. Thinking of one in particular, I got it and got it at what I thought was a pretty reasonable price and talked to the, the seller who's, you know, someone, you know, a prominent community member who, you know, I was comfortable talking with. And they were like, you know, it just, just wasn't my style. It's a good deck. It just wasn't my style. And I was tired of playing it. Okay, I'll take it. And this was after, after it had been sold. It wasn't like they were trying to like, like set the line or anything like that. It was, uh, it was just kind of some friendly banter after the fact. And there is, there is an awful lot of that. And especially the, the Shermans out there, <laughs> they're like, yeah, you know, I'm now playing the good decks that I, that I like, not just all the good decks. So they're, they're out there to be gotten for sure. And there's an awful lot that don't have the high SAS number bling that are going to do great too, that are, are going to be great finds. And the only thing that you have to do is, you know, put in the, the work to do the searching to find them. That's a lot of fun to me. It's like the search. A lot of fun. How uh, much time we spend on decksofkeyforge.com. I mean, it's insane. I'm going to show you two gully decks real quick. Calm Grief, he who slices the gully. And... Uh, Q Westfall of the seasonal gully. Ah, the, your net deck, right? Yeah, my, my net deck. Uh, Combo Grief, he who slices the gully, an 82 Saz deck from Coda, uh, 15 Amber Control, 33 Expected Amber, so expecting lots of Amber, uh, 11 Creature Control, and one on the Artifact Control, versus Q Westfall, uh, which has 12 Amber Control, 31 Expected Amber, 12 Creature Control, and 3.5 on the Artifact Control. Like, these... These could be doppelgangers, like 23 printed amber from Westfall, 21 on Combo Grieve. Uh, in a lot of ways, they play out like very simply. Similarly, one got the eye-catching number and the other didn't. They both hold up really well. So, I mean, they're, they're out there. Especially in DT. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was also going to say that like if you're looking on the secondary market, right as soon as a set comes out is like the worst time, I think, to... To find values, because I think everything at that time, like, you know, Winds of Exchange, actually, we didn't even mention it. Winds of Exchange is literally shipping. Um, as of today, we got the notification. Winds of Exchange on the secondary market is going to be pretty expensive for the next, you know, six months or so. Um, as people are kind of getting to know the set, they're trying to, you know, maybe spend a little bit extra to find something that they think could be underrated or undervalued. But I find personally as, as a seller, a secondary market seller, that right after the set comes out is like right when you can get the most money for this stuff. If you're looking for values, you want to wait for a few, you know, maybe the next release or two afterwards. Like there's probably some really cheap mass mutation decks available right now that are really strong. They're just not like the 85, 90 SAS stuff that has like the flashy number as JT put it. So if you're looking for values, don't look like immediately upon a set releases, but maybe look a little back. Like now is probably a good time to find some mass mutation values before um, Winds of Exchange comes out and kind of spurs the secondary market again. While we're, while we're on the topic, good question from the chat. Uh, I guess this will probably be one for Quick Draw and I, but what do you think have been the best the best bargains that you've gotten? Uh, I was just going to sh- give a shout out to Combo Grief, Cell Warden. I want to say this one, very reasonably priced. I'm not playing it this season in the KFL, but it's up there. It's It'll, it'll hang. And I think it was in the like 50 to 75 range wasn't kind of like your your pink fraud numbers on price tag but it it wins games in the hexad and is is just really strong well-rounded and uh, i think also lorian i know zock zock is very fond of the uh aoa brobnar suites uh, we've got some drummer not getting your chieftain stuff but this was this was for a song and just punches really hard i just dropped in the chat what i think is my value deck it's the one i was just talking about earlier um, that I got for a very reasonable price, under $50 for this one. Um, it, for a very long time, was my absolute best deck. And it's one of only two decks I own that I've played over 100 times. Um, it's still pretty strong, not quite as good as it was, but it's been a pleasure like getting to know it. And, you know, kind of saying, like, this is, you know, the pride and joy for what I've found on the secondary market uh, in a pretty, pretty good value. Um, definitely cheap, very strong deck. And I've had to learn the ins and outs of it. And that's been just tons of fun to have that process as well. I guess I never, I never actually said the name. Sorry, it's, if for anyone listening, it's Emerald, the Graduate of Lance Tower. It, yeah, it's still one of my favorites. Um, but you, know, you asked about like best value. I think that's probably where I'd, 
and I'm going to make a promise now and then not make good on it, but I'll put all the notes, I'll put on the, in the show notes, all the uh, links to all the decks that have been mentioned here. Those elusive show notes. <laughs> Do the show yeah. notes even exist? I've been letting you talk about these for like 38 <laughs> episodes now, and I actually don't know if they exist. It's so easy to promise to put things in the show notes, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I've put them in all the show notes that you've checked. How about that? You're not wrong about that. <laughs> uh, Ryan, I, I want to let you kind of close out if you have any other final thoughts. But I also just want to say we're looking at the slightly beefy Amir of Metro Bost again. And um, I just, you are not allowed to say that the deck got you there. If you play in an adaptive prime and you win it, you are not allowed to say that the deck got you there. That is, um, you, you no longer have that excuse. Uh, you should give yourself more credit. But I want to argue that good adaptive decks ex exist. <laughs> oh, I, I agree with you completely. Oh, so this is a topic for another day. But I, I do believe that good adaptive decks ex exist. But I think that those are the decks that, and this is getting into kind of the luck skill deck breakdown, but that result in more of a test of the skill than the than the deck or the or the luck, if you will. So, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can find let's let's take the obvious like guardrail example like the heart of the forest deck that if you land it and they have no answer then you just win because you have the like the end game inevitability that you you march towards and and then you get there and so game three is just like well we're gonna bid on and try and find a number that makes it a 50 50 that gives it kind of a 50 50 chance of whether or not you find this thing whether or not this thing happens you know does the thing happen it's 50 50 chance we've kind of reduced this matchup to a contest of luck, right? Uh, versus bringing decks that maybe aren't going to aren't going to encourage game threes with as much chains, and now all of a sudden our game three is an even game, assuming that we've arrived at like the right chain temperament. But it's a contest of, that's testing more skill than than luck, and hopefully you've normalized away the deck discrepancy. But anyway, that was my soapbox moment. But but I 100% with you. Um, but I think that if you if you follow that reasoning and you agree, you would have to then say that the good adaptive decks showcase the skilled players, and that fifteen and two number is even more impressive. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say on the day, there's eight rounds, which is an argument for them not doing adaptive live again because that took. <laughs> oh man i think it was like 18 hours or something it was nonsense it was such a long day um eight rounds went 205 of them so wow i won with beefy and then was able to beat beefy in five of those eight rounds i actually did lose one round um which i don't know how that's represented on here it's kind of funky but God, i love this deck so much <laughs> it's a great deck and it was it was right before Worlds Collide came out, so Worlds Collide, or right when it came out, so Worlds Collide decks weren't uh, viable in that adaptive prime, which I think saved me because this has some much funkier matchups once you get past AOA and Coda. But against AOA and Coda, I knew exactly what this deck could do, and it was, yeah, it, it was a cool day. As far as parting thoughts, I think the only other thing I wanted to mention, this is what I one of the things I said before we started, and this is, again, not my idea. This is more stuff I got from uh, talking to other people in the community, uh, Sith of Angmar especially, is the only other thing for budget players is try to go to these events. <laughs> like uh, Primes, they don't exist right now, but once there's like leagues and stuff going, but the Vault Tours especially, and try to enter in the main events. Like go do the Archon or Alliance. You might lose... O2, but I mean, even what you were saying, JT, like this community is awesome and getting to be with that community and play games against like fun people and get to connect with people and network and things like that. And then even if you do lose O2, you have Winds of Exchange Shield, <laughs> you have the uh, adventures like we like there's not enough talk about those. Those are pretty fun to do, especially with just like your jank decks that you never get to play. Uh, again, that's a, that's a bigger financial ask for a lot of people. I know that I hope gg is able to spread stuff out as the like year passes and stuff but um like don't let your intimidation or your fear that your decks aren't good enough stop you from even trying to compete in one of those because you might be surprised and if not you're still at an event with a bunch of awesome people playing a great game and having a lot of fun so i that was, that was a good thing for me to hear so i want to pass that on here love that that's great advice hoping to, i can get to one of those vault tours in july myself 
Same, same. Um, well, you might get a chance to try out the slightly beefy Amir of Metrobost in a few minutes after we close out the podcast section of this show, right, JT? Yeah, let's do it. We'll we'll talk logistics in a second. Um, first, I want to tell folks that this episode of Bottom the Beaker was brought to you by Grand's Brew. Grand's Brew was voted the number one drink of the Crucible for seven years running. It's going fast. Get yours before it's all Grand. Uh, you can. Uh, <laughs> I almost held it together. I almost held it together. You did great. Oh, we're good. proud of you. I'm gonna cut. Uh, this is another one of those things that you always say you're going to do, uh, but then don't. I'm going to cut that part out when I when I cracked up. But <laughs> everybody's listening right now, like he didn't cut it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, join us. <laughs> join us uh, Tuesday evenings, nine thirty Eastern time, uh, for live recordings of Bottom the Beaker. Twitch.tv/sloppylabwork is where you'll find us. Head over to YouTube, search for at sloppylabwork to find archives of our past shows and other streams. Uh, for the very best content, scrape from the bottom of the beaker. 34? No, 57 times distilled. Search for a bottom of the beaker in your podcatcher of choice. You'll find us there. Thanks so much to Orion, a.k.a. Floxum All, for joining us this evening. Thank you, Orion. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Awesome. And uh, quick draw, anything to say to the folks getting off at the last audio stop? Well, if you're getting off here, then I just hope you stay sloppy. 